morning we're back in Genesis chapter 43. Uh, it seems like the story has slowed down as far as chapters and begun to really give us more detail about every event. We kind of sped through a couple of events in many years uh, in just a couple of chapters. And now when uh, Joseph and his brothers begin to be reunited, it, it really begins to break it down and uh, show us the details of this, that this importance of the story is here. It wasn't necessarily in Potiphar's house. It wasn't necessarily in interpreting Pharaoh's dreams or necessarily even the famine, but really with Joseph and his brothers and his family and the plans that God had for uh, what would be Israel as a nation one day. But previously we saw Joseph's dreams. Remember those, the wheat bowing down to his brother's wheat, the stars and the sun and the moon bowing down. Remember that his brothers hated him. They plotted to kill him. He wanted to be saved by Reuben. Reuben kept him from being killed, and he meant to bring him back to his dad, but he couldn't because he was sold off by Judah and the others. So that he was with Potiphar in prison, with Pharaoh, and then feast and famine. It's a lot of F sounds there. Potiphar, prison, Pharaoh, feast and famine. We saw years of plenty and then years of famine. We saw that Joseph had married into Egyptian culture. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And his brothers go once again to get grain. And remember that Simeon was kept in Egypt the last time they showed up, that Joseph accused them of being spies, trying to test them. And he made Simeon stay behind. And they told him to bring Benjamin. But if you remember their last message, their hearts failed them for fear because their money was returned in their sacks. That when they opened up their sacks, the money was still in there. Was it a setup? Were they being framed? Remember they said, why has God done to this? God has done this. It's surely our sin catching up with us. As we get started this morning in the message of Genesis 43, the title being Go Back to the Man. Go Back to the Man. I want to read Psalm 105, a few selection of a couple of verses throughout there. It says, Sing to him, sing psalms to him. Talk of all his, God's wondrous works. Glory is his holy name. Let the hearts of those who rejoice seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. It's good that we're studying Genesis because it's good to remember what God has done. New Testament is great, but man, it's good to remember what God has done. And it goes on, it says, When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes. Remember Abraham? And he wouldn't allow the kings to hurt him, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. This was part of God's plan. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham, as this we'll see. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. As we see here in Genesis, as the last two chapters of Genesis wrap up the story of Joseph and his brothers, it's about God bringing his people into Egypt. 
that all of this with this family, this turmoil, this struggle, the trial, was all to bring about a nation safely into the promised land one day. But he had to bring them out of the promised land to bring them back into it. This morning, Lord, we see that God, uh, help us see that we need you. And we need you more and more. And God, that you are our provision. You're the one who has a perfect plan for us, no matter what's going on around us or what we're in. And what you've told us maybe in the past, that doesn't seem like it's going to come true, God. We can have faith, God, in the evidence of things not seen, that God, you're doing them. And you have a good plan and a perfect plan because you are good and you love us. And, and God, you've, you're in control. Nothing can stop you from getting what you want done done and we love you god and thank you for that please speak to us we pray in jesus name amen let's read the first seven verses of chapter 43 together and it says now the famine was severe in the land and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from egypt that's jacob and his sons that their father said to them go back buy us a little food but judah spoke to him saying the man solemnly warned us saying you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? And so Jacob says to go back, that the famine was severe in the land, that even though they had gone down, they had bought a lot of grain, I don't think it had been that much time. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us how long it had been, but it was time to go back. Let your food rain out. You know, we go to Walmart, or I go to Walmart every couple of weeks, make the trip up to Missoula, and I'm getting tired of it. You know, maybe, uh, like I said to you the other week, like, eh, we should probably figure out a way to do this once a month. Uh, but, you know, the cupboard starts to get low. Oh, there's no more chips, so let me eat this. Oh, there's no more popcorn, let me eat this. And you begin to string together creative solutions. I remember getting very creative in college when food ran out and there was no money. But that's where they're at. The food's run out. And they probably should have left a little while ago, but they haven't quite yet. And so Jacob Israel tells them to go back and Judah decides to remind his dad of what happened. He says, Dad, we went there last time. They have Simeon. If You wouldn't let us go back with Benjamin, so there's no way we're going back without him. If we go back without him, we're all going to be in trouble. The guy spoke sternly to us. He wasn't kind to us. He took our brother. We were in jail for three days. We have to take Benjamin. So Jacob, I think, realizing you know, that he has to do this, he lets it all out. He says, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell man whether you had another brother? Why did you tell him something you didn't have to tell him, guys? Why didn't you like, keep things close? Why, when you were there, why did you have to let it all out before him? You didn't have to tell him that you had another brother. I mean, there's some tact in that. When you go out in public, you know, you, you know, they say not to, to put on social media that you're going on vacation because if a criminal somehow sees it or is watching your house and they see that, well, they'll know you're gone. There's certain things you don't necessarily want to make public, especially when some guy has got you in prison. You want to use your information to your advantage and let it out when it's purposeful. But they said, Dad, he asked us pointedly. It's like we gave it up. He said, do you have another brother? 
We couldn't lie to him. He already thought we were spies. We had to be truthful with him. And how are we supposed to know that he would have us bring him with us? And they began to all chime in and let him know. Joseph knew exactly what to ask. You know, I think that part of that was a clue of Joseph kind of cluing them in. Like, you know, I think maybe it was a tell. I don't know if it's play cards or other things. And you try to figure out it's a tell what's going on, what they're going to do. I was watching this video on... Uh, boxing and MMA and uh, the way this one fighter would figure out what another fighter was doing he would see that he always would do the same sort of thing before he did a certain move and so he'd watch for that move and a lot of these guys who I thought was you could really learn a lot from it I think there's a lot of spiritual lessons in some of these things but uh, he would take like when he figured out what the tell was and what the next move was he would see an opening and so he would see the tell let him hit him with that move and then that would give him the opportunity to knock the other guy out so there'd be a tell. And I think that Joseph, in some sense, had this tell here that whether he was doing it on purpose or not, letting them know this information that he knew, you know, if the brothers would have been paying attention, perhaps they would have thought, could it be Joseph? Or at least it would have struck them weird that this man knew this. I mean, you know, it was pointed. But they're at the point where they need to go back. And so verse 8 says, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him, for Benjamin. For my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your older brother, your other brother, and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So we see that Judah takes charge here. It's interesting that the one that sold Joseph is now stepping up to the plate. That they needed to arise and go. That it had to be done. And Judah was taking charge. Because it was time to be done. It was time for someone to make a move. You know, sometimes you stand around, there's a... Uh, you'll be in a meeting at work and something has to get done and no one wants to step up because who wants to do it? But, you know, a, a leader is going to step up and say, I'll do it, I'll take it. But he says, also our little ones. You know, that I'm going to go because we need food, but our little ones need food. The kids, the, the innocent, the, the, the fragile need foods. Need food. And I think the feeling of little ones being in danger and hunger, not wanting your kids to suffer anything, you know, that's a, that's a caring father. That's a heart. Uh, a little different than Reuben sacrificing his kids last time, right? But not wanting your kids to suffer anything. You know, uh, even in considering a house to buy or anything in life, I don't want my kids to suffer things needlessly. If we suffer something for the gospel, well, that'll be hard. But it'll be worth it. But if they suffer because I just made a foolish mistake, Man, I don't want that. Especially hunger. I can't imagine my kids going hungry. Especially my kids going hungry because I didn't want to get up and go to the store. But Judah, again, he takes responsibility. And I believe he takes it in the right way. 
Remember Reuben's promise of sacrificing his own kids. They don't bring that up. They don't say, well, Reuben said last time that, you know, if we take Benjamin, you know, sacrifice his own kids if we don't come back. But he says, no, no, no. If you give me Benjamin, I will take care of him. I will bring him back and put him back in your presence. And if something goes wrong, it's on me forever. It's my responsibility. It won't be your, Dad, if something goes wrong, it's not your guilt. It's not your burden. It's mine. It's mine. We have to remember that Benjamin is not a little boy anymore. You know, even if Benjamin was born the day Joseph left for Egypt, when Joseph was 17, Benjamin would still be in his 20s by now. Maybe even older, you know? So he's definitely not a little boy anymore, but his dad's hanging on to him. It's kind of that kid that, uh, he's the baby of the family. I think we kind of, Ashley and I were talking about that the other day. We kind of understand the baby of the family mentality now that, you know, this is probably our last one that we're going to have. So this is the last time we're going to have a little baby. This is the last time he's going to grow up. Right, little man? Right, little man? He's getting so big so quick already. And the days just fly by. But he says, if we had not lingered, you know, if, if we had left, when we should have left, and we had left when we saw that there was only a couple bowls of cereal left in the bag, we'd be back by now. We'd have food by now. We wouldn't just be standing around here in dire straits without any food and arguing. We would, we would have gone. You know, I don't know if you've ever been hungry, and then you sit around, can't figure out what you want to eat, and then you linger some more, and you realize, you know, I could have gone out and gotten food and come back and made it already if I'd just gotten up before instead of sitting around. Uh, and it could have been back by now. And this procrastination... I believe it's this avoidance of real responsibility. And I believe they're avoiding this responsibility because of the fear of the consequence. The brother was there. They could end up in prison. Benjamin can end up in prison. They could end up killed. They could end up slaves. A whole host of things. And their dad would be without food and they'd all be lost. So who wants to make that decision? That's a heavy weight. That's a burden. Who wants to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to go face this today. I think, of course, they waited to the last minute until they had to because wouldn't you and I, don't you and I do that? Perchance, I'm not saying it's the right thing, but don't we do that? Right, bud? You don't do that. But Jacob says to take some of the best that they had as a present. And the David Guzik's commentary says, perhaps Jacob remembered how well it seemed to work when he showered Esau with gifts. That perhaps he's remembering a little bit. Let's bring him some gifts here. But if we remember, the famine affected the grain and the livestock, affected everything. If these things aren't working, certainly your fruit trees aren't growing. Certainly almond trees aren't growing. So I assume that they had these items stored up. You know, we watched a couple videos last night about Depression-era cooking and how they would take bread with butter every morning and dip it in coffee, and that was their breakfast. And on Sundays, they could have some sugar cookies. That was the big deal. And I think that's kind of here, that they had some of these items, but they didn't use them every day of the week. They saved them, they stored them, but let's give the stuff that's most valuable to us because we can't even go grain and food, let alone the fancy items. So let's bring these fanciest items to him. But when you think about it, would any of these gifts actually be something that the second most powerful man on earth would enjoy to eat? You know, they say, what, do you, what can you buy for the man who has everything? Right? It's my older brother's birthday tomorrow and I... I I'm excited. I can't wait to wish him happy birthday. I want to get him something. But what can I get him? The man is, 
has good stature in the world, is well off, and I'm happy for him. He's worked very hard. God, you know, God has blessed him with gifts and talents, and he's spent a career of working hard and doing good work, and he deserves it. But it's like, what can I get him? You know, here's a $20 Amazon gift card. You know, here's a T-shirt. Here's a whatever. You know, it's, it's, you know I, I think it would mean something to him. But sincerely, if he was angry with me, if he was upset with me, what could I do to appease that? But perhaps it might show Joseph their gratitude. He may not care and may go on a shelf. He may never touch it, but at least it would show their heart towards him. Because Proverbs 21.14 says, A gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. You know, if someone's coming after to get you, can't hurt to try and want to buy him out, right? But Jacob says, Israel says, perhaps it was an oversight. Perhaps Egypt made a mistake in their books. They got a million people coming in every day. Perhaps they just made a mistake and your money ended up back in your sack somehow. Because you know what? Even the most powerful government make mistakes. It's possible. Believe it or not, the government makes mistakes. Believe it or not, the government might not count things. Although, usually when it comes to power, uh, oversights and these sort of things are in the government's favor. Oh, we taxed you too much. Oh, we owe you a refund. And I love the thing, best thing about taxes is that you have to go after them to give you your money back. You know, if you have those deductions, they won't just give it back to you. And oh, it's too late. But if you don't pay them, they'll be after you real quick. So I always remember about my brief stint in college was anytime they needed something from me, it had to be right away. But if I needed something from them, well, I'll get it when I get it. Some friends were telling us about their contractor uh, had some oversights and ended up overbilling them. And I hope that it was as simple as an oversight, but in the real world, I think some people call it fraud. You know, and hope you don't catch it. But I'm not saying that's what happened there. But Israel says, arise, go back to the man. Go back to this man in charge of Egypt. Go back to the man who got you the grain of Simeon. We have to go. You have to go. Go back to him. Because it really is time to get up and do what you must. Right, bud? It's time to get up and do what you must. Sometimes the alarm goes off in the morning. I saw this meme of this guy sleeping in clouds and it says something like, uh, me sacrificing my career for eight more minutes of sleep. You know, <laughs> like we just sometimes, it's just, we have to get up. We have to get up and go. It's our responsibility to do it and there's no more time left. You've hit snooze enough and you have to go. But you have to do what you must in life. And when it comes to the things we say, and do I really believe what I say? Do I really say what I believe? And if I do, I must get up and do it. If I really believe that I'm going to get robbed one day, it would be best for me to lock my doors at night. And do I really believe, more importantly, what the Lord tells me? And if I do, I must get up and do it. Otherwise, maybe he's not the Lord like I say he is. And I believe sometimes that perhaps we say we don't believe something just because we don't want to obey it and we don't want to do it or we don't want to face the consequence of doing it. So we make excuses. We stand around. We wait around. We, we, we ask people, like the Bible says, with itching ears until we find someone who tells us what we want to hear. We've heard from God, go do this, or don't do this. We don't like what he says. 
So we, we, we convince ourselves we don't believe it's really God speaking to us, but deep down we know it. So we go around, we look for advice from friends, and our friends tell us the same thing God's telling us, so we don't listen to them. So we go to another friend, and they don't tell us what we want to hear, so we go to another friend, and then this friend finally tells us what we want to hear, and so we listen to them. But it affects everything else. And sometimes perhaps we doubt and struggle, again, not because it's unbelievable, but again, because of the ramifications and the consequences of obeying it. It means this relationship is going to end. It means I'm going to have to move. It means I'm going to have to give up this. But what was that missionary who said, you know, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could never lose, right? And it's interesting, the devotional from this morning, and utmost, says, Our Lord never takes measures to make me do what he wants. Sometimes I wish God would master and control me to make me do what he wants. But he will not. And at other times, I wish he would leave me alone. And he does not. You call me teacher and Lord, but is he? Teacher, master and Lord have little place in our vocabulary. We prefer the word savior, sanctifier, healer. The only word that truly describes the experience of being mastered is love. And we know little about love as God reveals in his word. The way we use the word obey is proof of this. If we are consciously aware that we are being mastered, that idea itself is proof that we have no master. If that is our attitude towards Jesus, we are far away from having the relationship he wants with us. He wants us in a relationship where he is so easily our master and teacher that we have no conscious awareness of it. A relationship where all we know is that we are his to obey. And God was saying, guys, you have to go back to Egypt. You have to go find your brother. Yeah, you should have went after him years ago. But I've allowed it to happen that I might save you all and save Israel as a nation, but I'm making you go now. I'm not going to leave you alone. The food is going to run out, and you're only going to have one choice. You're going to die, your whole family is going to die of a lack of food, or you go back and you face the music and go back to that man in Egypt. And so they take their brother also. They have Jacob's permission now. They didn't have it right away, but even the pressure got to good old Israel, and he allowed Benjamin to go. You know, that everyone is on board and willing to do what they must to survive and keep their family not only alive, but together. So they take double money. They take the money that they owed, and they take or the money that was in their sacks, and they take money that they pay, and they take money on top of that, I believe. And they're not going to sacrifice Simeon. They can leave Simeon there and perhaps try and buy from someone else. They're going to take responsibility for perhaps an oversight in Egypt and bring gifts and money to show that they didn't take this oversight on purpose. And they're going to put their own lives on the line because if anything happens to their youngest brother, it's on them. And even then, they could end up as prisoners or slaves. So despite their hesitation earlier, I believe at least Judah seems like a changed man. When before, he was willing to sell his youngest or one of his youngest brothers into slavery. He's now willing to put his life online and take responsibility for his youngest brother now and their whole family. In Matthew 21, 28 through 32, I've shared this plenty of times before, but it says, what do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And his son answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and he went. And then he came and said to the second and said, Likewise. And his second son answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. 
which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said, Surely I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. That Judah, something's changing him. Because being obedient to the call is important. And doing it in a timely manner is important. It's not obedience if, if you sit on it. And to be obedient, it means laying your life down. And sometimes that's the only way to accomplish the obedience. But as with these guys and the verses we just read, don't let our past hesitation or disobedience stop us from doing it now. Yes, God told you to do this 10 years ago. And you were obedient, disobedient for those 10 years. But you know what? You're convicted today. Get up and do it today. Don't let the past 10 years of failure keep you a failure. And that's a trick of the enemy to try and trick you and say, well, you failed before. You've been disobedient so long. It's too late now. As long as there's breath in your lungs and breath in their lungs, it's not too late. Don't delay. Obey. Sure, you could have been done with it by now. Sure, it could have taken you two months to do it, and it's been 10 years, but all the more reason to get it done now. Sure, maybe I could have mowed the lawn the other day, but I did it yesterday. Sure, I could have waited until Tuesday, but you know what? There's a break in the rain. I want to get it over with. I don't want to put ahead this week. I went and got it done yesterday because it was overgrown. It's been raining all week. I've been able to cut it. That's just the lawn. When it comes to things of God, we shouldn't delay. We should be, as soon as we feel pricked and convicted about it, we should try and do it. And you know what? People's lives may depend on it. Perhaps your very own families. You know, Timmy's crying. I'm just going to sit around and wait. If I hear him choking or something, I'm not going to sit around and wait and see if he's okay. I'm going to get up and make sure he's okay before it's too late. But verse 14 Jacob steps up, and in fact, he brings God back into their affairs. He says, may God Almighty give you mercy before the man. He's calling on God. And other than the brothers recently thinking that God had brought this on them, it's nice to see God back in it. It's nice to see them in some way turning to God. They're desperate. It's their last chance effort. May God have mercy on you guys. You know, sometimes we pray for God's mercy, but he's already given it. He's already ready. And he's already forgiven you. But we just need to step up to the plate and take responsibility for our own sin. In a sense, it's not our stepping up to the plate that God says, oh, okay, I'm ready to forgive you now, now that you've shown up. But oftentimes, like with my kids, I'm ready to forgive them even before I discipline them. But I know I have to discipline them. And as soon as they're ready to say sorry, it's pretty much as soon as they're ready to receive my mercy. It's been... I've been waiting to give it. I've been waiting for you to come back out here and play with me. But you've been sitting in there unwilling to say you're sorry. Because forgiveness and mercy and grace happened those 2,000 odd years ago at the cross at Calvary. And truthfully, if we really think about it from God's perspective, even before the Garden of Eden. Because when God planned everything, when God said, I'm not going to create everything, he knew what was going to happen. Didn't catch him off guard. He knew before he created everything he was going to have to send his son to die to save us. Because he loves us. 
He loves you. God loves you and me. I think sometimes we don't like to think that. Like, oh, I believe it because it means that we are loved by God. And if we're loved by God, everything is going to change. Your life is going to be free of so many things if you just knew your dad loved you. And you don't have to beg him for it. You don't even have to ask sometimes. He just loves you. He already has it in his hands. He's already waiting for us to receive it. Joseph would have given them grain the moment they showed up, as we'll see. So why don't we? Verse 15 says, So the men took the present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand, and arose and went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we're brought in. That's why he's brought us here, so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down to the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our own hand and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought them into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave them their donkey's feed. And they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. So they took double money, money for what they owed, or what they thought they owed, and money for the new grain. They took their brother and then they took the present of the best that they had and they went down and it says they stood before Joseph. So they went to wherever the grain was being dispensed. Um, I don't think it was the same day. I think, you know, uh, even whenever they got there, they probably went there the next day. Um, so they usually don't travel at night, but it says Joseph instructs the steward of his house. And I love that because what was Joseph? He was kind of the steward over his dad's stuff. He was a steward in Potiphar's house, and now God has put him to a place where he's got his own stewards. He knows exactly what it's like to be this man that he's giving orders to. But he tells this steward of his house that I'm sure he trusts, take these men back, and we're going to have a lunch feast. So again, I don't know when they got to Egypt, but it must be the morning, because he says at noon we're going to have this feast, so it's probably early in the morning. They got there when the grain distillery opened up. It's the beginning of the day. And he says, take them back, get them ready. We're going to have lunch. And it reminds me of Revelation 3.20 when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The desire of God is to dine with us, is to feast with us, is to have us in and to come into our lives and have a meal with us. Be friends with us, be close to us. And that's what Joseph does here. Joseph doesn't do this for just anyone. I, I have to wonder what the, the servants of the house we're saying and murmuring about this. 
because it's an intimate act to eat with someone, especially in their culture, as we'll see, let alone the ruler bringing in dirty peasants from another land. Uh, you know, at work, we have uh, parties several times a year. We all get together and eat. And it's not like the CEO sits at a table and none of us can go over and talk to him. He comes and mingles with us and talks with us and managers sit with uh, new employees and old employees sit with, you know, it's like, it, yeah, we all have our ranks, so to speak, as far as our job role. But we're all people. We go there and eat and hang out and have fun together as a company. That's not usually the case for things like this. So he says slaughter an animal. Oh, okay, it's not a big deal. You know, you got to kill an animal and have lunch. But remember, this is a famine. The worst famine the world has ever seen. And Joseph is having his staff kill an animal for these guys. Now, you're feeding 12 guys. You probably got to kill a big animal. You know, a six-pound turkey ain't going to cut it. It's going to have to be a big one. Verse 18 says that they were very afraid. That these guys didn't realize it was for a feast or they didn't believe it. They're there. They've shown up. Everything they've talked about, all their fears, what's happened. They show up. Joseph sees them. Right away, they get pulled out of line and they get taken to Joseph's house. He, he's bringing us here. He, he's going he's gonna to put us in jail. He's going to take our donkeys. We're going to be slaves now. What are we going to do? And so they figure out, you know, we need to talk to the steward. But I have to wonder, you know, is this why people don't come to the Lord or the church? Despite wanting forgiveness, despite bringing some gift in life, despite wanting to do good things and, and make up for perhaps what they've done wrong in the past, is because they don't realize that they're being brought into a feast. You know, we nicknamed this little space the living room, and it's kind of why we have couches and everything. Because, yeah, it's meant to be a holy time in the Lord's word. But it's meant to be an intimate time. It's meant to be a time when we meet with God and he meets with us. And he wants you and I to be comfortable in his presence. If there's uncomfortable, it's meant to be because of our sin. Not because of him. And so they plead with this man. Hey, steward, wait, 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 please. We brought more money. We had money in our sacks. It was there. We think it was an oversight. So we brought money. We brought gifts. We didn't take it. I think that's wise. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, 25 and 26, it says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you'd be thrown into prison. And surely they say to you, by no means get out of there until you paid the last penny. Man, if something's going on and you're getting in trouble, you think you're getting in trouble, deal with it now before you get into the courtroom. Deal with it outside before you get into the place where the trial is going to happen. Deal with it now before you're standing before the ruler is going to cast you. Maybe this steward can help you out a little bit. But he said to them, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Now, who does that sound like? Does that not sound like Jesus? Or even what do the angels say a lot when they come from the presence of God? They say, peace, don't be afraid. I have a message from God. And this guy, in a sense, is like one of Joseph's angels. He's, got, he's Joseph's servant. He's Joseph's messenger. He's speaking to them. There's other people that speak to them. And Baphet Joseph, Joseph is still speaking Egyptian when he speaks to them. That's what God says to us. God sends angels to minister to us. Again, this picture of Joseph is, is very much like the Lord. But it says, Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. That's this guy, undoubtedly being in Joseph's house, has heard about the God of Israel. 
And I think in some way, maybe he knows that they're the brothers. I don't know. Because he goes, the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just saying it because he doesn't believe. Or maybe he's saying it because this guy's caught on who these guys are. He's heard the story of Joseph. He's heard about how God has provided for him. He says, I had your money. I had your money the whole time. You know, um, the commentary talks about this not being a lie because he really did have it. He just gave it back. It's like one of those things where you can say something and it's true, uh, but it's kind of open to interpretation. But it was really because of God's goodness that they had the money back. This guy knew that. Everyone else had to pay. These guys got grain and their money back. And he brings out Simeon out to them. They're reunited. He gives them water to wash their feet. Yeah, you're coming into the king's presence. You kind of need to be cleaned up. And that's what the Lord does to us. He gives us the water of his word to wash us, right? Now when we go into God's presence, he wants to clean us up. Forgive us by his blood. The veil has been torn. And he gives us the water of his word to sanctify us and prepare us for that heavenly feast. So they go out to the car, so to speak. They begin to get the fruits and the almonds and all this stuff. And they put together a nice little gift basket for Joseph. Verse 26 says, And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand in the house, uh, into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. So they came in from outside, they get their gift out of the car for Joseph, they put it down, and they bow down to the earth. Remember the dreams? They're bowing down over and over to this man. They don't even know that it's this dream coming true, this dream of 30 or so years ago. And I don't know that Joseph longed for them to come in a private way. I can't wait for the day my brothers to bow down to me. I don't think that's Joseph. I can't wait for them to listen to me and obey me. He couldn't wait for that day to see what God would do. And I think that's the same way with us. I think sometimes we think, that's God up there. Come in and bow down to me. I can't wait for you to bow down to me. People talk about, oh, what kind of God is it that, you know, if we don't believe in him, he puts us in hell and we have to. No, that's not how it works. He wants us to bow down to him because there's blessing in it, because he's God. He longs for that day that we might be able to come into his presence. And we can't come into the king's presence without first bowing down. Have something God promised would happen come true. A blessing, a grace, something not deserved. His brother's bowing down to him. He's younger. The older ones are bowing down to him. That's something to weep over and be thankful for. And we see him weep last time. We see him weep this time. Especially when it means a family being brought back together. 
I have my kids, oh Lord, what a blessing. And to see my family come back to the Lord one day would be something to weep over, especially if God used me to do it. But the first thing Joseph asked about is their father, Jacob. I wonder what Joseph had been thinking and feeling the whole time they're gone. They've been gone for a little while. I wonder what he's thinking. Can you imagine the emotions and the rush and the excitement and kind of looking every day? Are they back yet? Simeon is a prisoner in his basement. <laughs> I got my brother downstairs, but he can't go down and talk to him. Thinking about them, longing for his family and the help reunion. You know, I, I understood that to some degree before, but now living here and the rest of our family in other parts of the country, and I long to see them again. I can't imagine the weight of this level of longing. And it was overwhelming for him, undoubtedly. He's crying now. I wonder if he cried other times. But as they bow down again, they tell him about his dad, he sees his little brother, Benjamin, all grown up. He goes, is this Benjamin? That he longs for his brother. You know, these guys are all his brothers, but they're really his half-brothers. Benjamin is his full brother, who is his little brother. They probably played together. It was his mom, uh, only one by his mom. And his mom died. They probably had a really special relationship when they were little. And he was taken away from him. His little brother. I see Jacob with Timmy, and how much he loves him and wants to play with him. And I'm glad they have that. They have that, and I can't wait to see it grow. But. He says, my son, obviously he can't call him a brother, but I think in some sense Joseph felt responsibility for his family, especially his younger brother, oh, my son. In a sense, I feel like Joseph was like, I wish I was there for you when you were growing up to be there for you. But Joseph gets up to go weep when he sees Benjamin. He can't contain himself. His little brother, and again, he's not so little anymore, is enough to crack the facade, and he goes into his private chamber, and he weeps, and he washes his face, and he comes out, and he restrains himself. He says, serve the bread. I don't know if you've ever been overcome with emotion at that point where like, even just getting words out is tough, let alone getting words out and not crying in. So he probably says it very succinctly and just sits there and holds it in. It's interesting, remember, Joseph being a former slave, he's treated, in a sense, not as a Hebrew here because he's got all this power, but he's separated from the Hebrews. I think if he was looked completely like a Hebrew, he would have been seated with them because, you know, he didn't eat with them because Egypt was one of the most, this is again, I'm reading from commentary, racially separated societies on earth. Uh, they, believe the, they believe that the Egyptians came from the gods and all other peoples came from lesser origins. Sounds like, uh, you know, the perfect master race, right? It's funny how those things go together, right, with superpowers. But there was a little social mixing with foreigners in Egypt of Joseph's day. So the Egyptians, he says, would not eat with Joseph, much less the strangers from Canaan. Uh, it says that Joseph could not eat with real Egyptians, but I, I struggle with that. I mean, it's probably true, but I struggle with that because he's separated from them here, and he's married into the culture. He was given the daughter of a priest. So there is this connection there. Maybe he's kind of like halfway in between. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't eat with the, the Egyptians regularly, but he's certainly not eating with the Hebrews here. But it says it's known that uh, Herodotus the Egyptian abhorred foreign things, that priests at least ate and drank nothing that was imported, nor would they use utensils for eating what had been used by the Greeks. Uh, you know, and it says, Herein is the wisdom of God. Before Genesis is finished, God brought the entire family of Jacob into Egypt, where they were isolated from the surrounding people for some 400 years. In that time, they multiplied greatly, increasing to the millions. If God had allowed them to remain in Canaan, 
they would have simply assimilated into the corrupt and godless peoples of Canaan. The rape of Dinah and the aftermath and the sin of Judah's son revealed in the chapter. So he's saying that, look, like God brought them out of Canaan because they would have been assimilated into that culture, into this racially divisive culture that they might be kept separate, that they might be incubated by the Egyptian culture around them, keeping the outward culture out and keeping them out of the Egyptian culture. Excuse me. That God brought Joseph ahead of them to make the arrangements for this. I think it's interesting that they have Joseph, a Hebrew what? They despise the Hebrews. They despise outside cultures. They won't eat with them. They won't even touch them or use utensils. Eating, they believe they were defiled by eating. Again, you see this whole culture today. I think they can be defiled by what they eat, right? Unless it's mushrooms. I'm defiled if I eat mushrooms. But they have a Hebrew over their food supply. You see the irony in there, the way God works? Oh, you guys have this rule, but <laughs> I'm going to put Joseph over all your food. Rise, Peter, kill and eat, right? But at the table, they have this feast. Joseph, picture Joseph at this grand table at the top, and down below is another table, the kids' table for his brothers. And they set them in birth order, from oldest to youngest. And the men look around like, how did he do this? How could anyone tell? I don't know if you and I ever try and guess other people's ages let alone 11 adult brothers. You know, we have friends in New York and the middle brother is always assumed to be the older brother and the older brother is assumed to be the middle brother. And then a family of uh, my uh, pastor friend, my good friend who passed by this past year, uh, a bunch of brothers and they're all tall, corn-fed Indiana folk. Don't ask me to tell which one's the older, which one's the younger, which one's any of that, let alone 11 of them accurately. And this word astonished means dumbfounded. They're sitting there about to eat dumbfounded. Think of this whole situation. They just got off the road. They just thought they were going to be prisoners. Now they're in here. They're washed up. They're back with their brother. They're about to feast. And he sits them in the right order. Again, I think this is another clue that Joseph was not a magician. I put the money back in your sacks. That's a little magic trick, right? Knowing the questions to ask, he seemed to be divinating a little bit, right? And he set them in order. That he's got this magical presence about him. He keeps doing all these wonderful miracles in their presence, right? And they're dumbfounded by them. Isn't that like us with the Lord? I believe Joseph was leaving clues here, dropping hints, on purpose even. Wanting to be found out, wanting them to to wonder in amazement. All to lead up to this grand reveal, which isn't going to happen now, but this grand reveal of who he is. Just as I believe like God is and does. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That God wants to be known by us. And we look around and go, No, that can't be God. No, that was just coincidence. No, that was just the doctor. No, that was just this. That was just random chance in billions of years. No. That's God. Revealing, even in the Old Testament, all the pictures of all the people and all the things can't waiting to be revealed. And even then, he gives a little taste on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus didn't have to do that. But he gave him a little taste of what he really looked like. And what we're really going to see face to face. Glowing be changed. Even with Moses, he would glow and have to cover his face. Because God kept giving taste of who he really was and who he really is. But no, no, no. We don't want to go up on the mountain. 
We're just astonished by it and scared by it. But God won't force us to recognize Him. He won't force us to bow down as King in this life as our brother whom we betrayed and killed. But He wants us to see that He loves us and He cares for us. But He has to let our, our, our recognition of Him come out of a love for Him. Not out of demanded servitude. I'm your brother. Bow down before me. Guys, come in. Come in my house and feast. I'm going to set you in order. <laughs> Tell me about your dad. Tell me about the other brother. That how I ever... Yeah, there's 11 guys. Why would there be another one? <laughs> because otherwise it wouldn't be a real reunion. How could he trust them and have a real relationship with them the whole time he's wondering if they're just doing it for the food? And man, isn't that why some of us come to the Lord just for blessing and provision? And sure, God may bless you and provide for you in that, but you're missing out on such a deeper, more fulfilling, more loving and, and wonderful relationship with the God who made you. It says that they took, so Joseph had all the food in front of him. The servant would come up and take a little bit in front of Joseph and put it in front of the man and each one got a plate. So it wasn't serve yourself buffet. They were being served. And the Benjamin, the last one, the last shall be first, right? And he got five times as much as everyone else. He was showing his little brother favor. It says they drank and were merry, quote, with him. I believe they actually forgot all their worries and cares for a minute. They're at this party eating in the middle of the day and seemingly merry can even be translated drunk. You know, these 12 brothers get back together. It's not so surprising. <laughs> and you get 12 guys drinking. It's probably going to turn into a, a ruckus party, right? And I think in this sense, in this way, in this time, it was a good thing. It's in the midst of a famine. The Bible says, for he is a heavy heart, give him something to drink. But wine is not for you, O kings. Uh, but in the aftermath of all these years of guilt and shame, they're back together as brothers. Their needs are being met, and they're in this wonderful place they never could have gotten to on their own. And in the years of wandering and not having a permanent home among the Canaanites, all those years of God's promise to make Abraham a nation, these things were finally culminating now in these chapters. And I believe that's why the Bible goes into such great detail with them. It doesn't gloss over them. It devotes chapter after chapter after chapter to them coming together. That their cup is about to overflow in the next few chapters as this plan of God's comes together in the most beautiful way. Despite their sin, despite their pain, despite their family being anything but righteous these past few decades. And like Pastor John Corson has once said, I believe, if it's not beautiful, God's not done yet. And it's looking pretty beautiful here. And as we close this morning, where are you? Do you feel like you can't see how it's all going to work out? Does it feel hopeless? Is the money running out? Is the food running out? And the only way to deal with it is to go back and do what you're supposed to do. Are you stuck in that famine still? Maybe you've had a little provision, but it's run out again. Someone gave you some money to help you through, and now it's run out. You're stuck again. And this time it's worse than it was the first time, because this time it could cost you a lot more. And perhaps not even of your own doing. They didn't do anything wrong, and yet they were fearing for their lives. They did, some, you know, they did something wrong in the past, but not this time. And maybe you're bowed down before something in life, and you're not realizing that somehow this famine that's making you bow down in life is God's provision. It's really His hand of grace out to you. He's allowed you to be back into a corner that would force you to look up 
I have been here all along. I didn't mean for it to get this long, but you let it get this bad. I'm here now. Let me let you out. Let me get you out. So we need to arise and go toward him. Let God's plans be worked out for you on your behalf. Feast with him. He's not going to put you in prison. He's not going to make you a slave. Serving God is not being a slave. He doesn't take your donkey. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Come inside, feast with him. Forget your cares. Be merry with him. Ephesians 5, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine. These guys are drunk with wine, but again, I think it's another time. But listen to what it says, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Just like these guys were partying together as brothers, when we come to the Lord, we should be filled with the Spirit, partying together, not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in our heart to God in this feast room, right? Giving thanks always for the things of God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They probably held their cup up to Joseph. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. Brother, I love you, brother. Oh, this is great. Oh, look at all the food on Benjamin's plate. Do you think any of them was jealous over Benjamin? I think they were laughing. Look at Benjamin. He can't even fit it. I remember when my wife and I went to go try out the food for our wedding and they sat us at this little table and this really nice man who ran the place who was a friend of uh, my stepdad's came out and kept bringing us plate up, full plate of food, full plate of food. So that we could barely even taste it before he brought us another plate. It was just, just so overwhelming. Like, here, I want you to have all this stuff just to try it. How much it cost him to do that just to get, you know, we were going to buy the food anyway for the wedding. It says... Making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. But that's why God's inviting you in. That's why the door is open. That's why the veil is torn to make you and redeem you and reunite you with him that you might rejoice and not suffer. God, help us to see you for you really are, to see these miracles that you do in our lives these signs and wonders and even your word and really let it strike us say well how can you know that about me and know that you are truly our father knows every hair on our head and cares about every need we have before we have it and god i thank you that you've invited us in through jesus god anyone who's listening or the people in our families god would you bring them into you would they truly know what it is to feast on the lord jesus we love you god uh, god continue to use your word in our lives help us feast with you even today in jesus name amen may god bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until.